and welcome to the Industry 4.0 Weekly Community Podcast. I am your host, Walker D. Reynolds. We are sponsored by 4.0 Solutions, and we are live for Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. Election Day here in the United States. So we have a jam-packed um, podcast for you today. Three, three or four segments. You'll notice by the title, Is the Future of Industry Digital? Uh, I'm going to be going over um, some couple of posts in from LinkedIn earlier in this week that I thought were fairly fascinating. I've got some bunch of announcements to go over and then um, and then we'll get into the discussion. But I want to start with um, Election Day. <clears throat> Just real quick. As you can see, I voted this morning. Um, uh, if you guys got any questions that you want me to answer, go ahead and put them in the chat as a quick reminder. Um, I don't see the chat. I only see the stuff that Josh puts up uh, on the overlay. So I, if a, unless a question pops up on the overlay, I don't actually see it unless I expand my screen out and look at the individual chat it's to keep me from getting distracted. Um, well, I want to talk about the election. I got a couple of messages, DMs, and Twitter today. Um, people, for whatever reason, people want to know, like, it's very interesting, I have found. Some of the things that people want to know about me, the questions that people ask. Um, so like my politics, right? Um, I, I'm a very middle of the road guy. So obviously, I mean, I think if you talk to me, you'd, you'd know I'm a very middle of the road guy. But an interesting factoid my dad told me when I was a kid, remember when I was registering to vote and I had to pick a political party, my father said, register Republican and then vote your conscience. And that stuck with me. I'm 48. That was 30 years ago. Uh, 30 years ago, he said that. He said, register Republican and vote your conscience. So I am a registered Republican. Um, and it, But in most elections, I'm, I vote for both actually Libertarians, Republicans, and Democrats. Um, I In the last two presidential elections, I supported the Libertarian candidate, Joe Jorgensen, in the last election. Um. You know, I, I, I believe in the power of people. I, I, I have a huge, huge faith in people. Um, I love people who have different ideas than I do. I One of the things I talk with my kids about all the time is like the importance of the best ideas much win, must win, not just in politics, but in everything, like in work. And we talk about this in Industry 4.0 all the time, that the best ideas much must win. I am a huge free speech advocate, and I'm I'm big on liberty, on the, on the liberty of the individual. Um, I believe that in history, collectivism has actually never works um, <clears throat> and um, and always leads to despotism. So I'm a huge fan of the individual, which leads me to this other little quick thing. I um, was reading on Twitter this morning, I think um, somebody wrote this post about if you if you read what people talk about Elon Musk, what they say about Elon Musk on Twitter, that does not comport with the Elon Musk that I know. Um, in fact, let me, uh, I'll, I'll bring it up real quick. Um, so it, it, I think it was whole Mars catalog. He said, you know, the, the Elon Musk, I see people talking about on Twitter. Isn't the one I know. It's not the one I've talked to and sat down with. Instead, they've come up with some cartoon caricature of a comic book supervillain and they believe it's real. It's amazing to see people so divorced from reality. 
Um, I agree hundred percent. My, my response was, you know, Elon's a visionary. He's a pragmatist. He's mission driven. He personifies the statement. Don't fight theoretical battles when the results war. He is one of the good guys and oh, he's from the future. Uh, one of the things I, I love about Elon Musk is that he cares about the best ideas winning. And honestly, it's probably the only thing he cares about. This is why I believe that like all voices have to be at the table. You know, my, my kids are pretty conservative kids. And like, we'll be driving around, you know, in the car and they'll, you know, be bashing Democrats or something at some point. And I'll say, you know, there's a lot of great progressive ideas. It's not like, uh, you know, progressives are bad people or whatever. There's a lot of there's a lot of great ideas just because their party lacks leadership doesn't mean they're wrong. You know, we have to we I, I want those ideas at the table, but I certainly don't want you know, any one party to have complete and total power. So, and, and that really carries over into what we do in industry 4.0. When I, I did a post the other day about one of the biggest things that we have to, you know, the, one of the un, unspoken challenges, the thing we don't talk about, the nasty little truth we don't talk about all the time is just how much politics, internal politics plays into um, success or failure in digital transformation. And one of the things we're going to talk about today is um, a podcast, Eric Kimberling, who you remember I was on his podcast not too long ago. He he did a podcast today, Why Digital Transformation Failures Are Increasing, A Lawyer's Perspective. And we're going to talk about that. He interviewed a software attorney as to why they're they're failing. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit in the future, but in, in later in the podcast. But one of the biggest challenges is political beings inside of organizations who are focused on their own self-interest over the best interest of the organization. They What they do is they see what's best for them in the short term outweighs what's best for the long organization in the long term, which is what's in their best interest long term. Right. So and it's a it's a interesting phenomenon that we all deal with. And, and when we talk about transformative leadership and disruptive leadership, we're talking about taking those people head on, taking them on head on. You know, you use disruptive leadership, use transformative leadership to solve their problems and win them over. Use disruptive leadership to get rid of them if they don't jump on the bus. Right. All right. Announcements. We'll talk about all this stuff later, but I just want to make sure I touch on that. So uh, announcements. Intellic is hiring. So the team has asked me to put this. I want to talk a little bit about like the current state of employment in systems integration. Right. Um, so I'm gonna take a couple of minutes on this. It's kind of important for those you integrators out there, or those of you who want to become an integrator, software developers, what's the current state of the job market? Okay. Um, let me say this from, from the beginning, from the beginning of the pandemic, it was very clear to us based on our analysis. So epidemiological mortality, economic analysis, that the pandemic was going to become much more of an economic event than it was a um, pandemic be much more economic. <clears throat> the economy is going to get much worse and we're inflation is going to be much worse. We are in a recession right now, despite what some people are trying to say that we're not in a recession. We are in a recession. We have had multiple quarters of negative GDP growth. Um, just because you say that that's no longer the definition of a recession doesn't make it. So, okay, we are in a recession um, We're we have runaway inflation you know, 8% or greater um, 
month over month. You know, last year we had to do a really large cost of living raise for our employees. We had to increase our billable rate um, a lot. Uh, I think our billable rate had to go up something like 20%, uh, 25%, something like that. Last year, it's going to have to go up that high, that much, at least again this year. All of that's going to get passed on to our customers. Eventually, they're going to run out of capital. The liquidity markets are drying up because interest rates, the cost of borrowing money is going up and up and up to try and cool off the economy. So it's sort of a perfect storm of what's happening right now. But one of the interesting things is... Um, because of inflation um, and because of demand in our market, wages are going up significantly for engineers and software developers. But that's going to be short-lived, right? So let's say I'm an engineer who is looking for a position, right? I'm not going to try and get, well, if I'm looking for, if I want to play the long game, if I'm going to play the short game, I'm going to try and get as much money as I possibly can right now and I'm going to ask them to take the money that they would normally put in benefits and put them in my salary. Um, and I'll, I'll take as high a salary as I could possibly get, but crappy benefits. That's what, if I was playing the short game, say I want to go somewhere for say six to 12 months or something. If I'm playing the long game, then I'm going to be looking for a lower salary and, and higher quality benefits. So offset, you know, and, and for those of you that are not in business, like, uh, if you're an engineer, you know, I make the comment all the time that you need to you need to know exactly how much you cost and exactly how much revenue you generate. Your cost is not your salary. <laughs> I mean, um, like, for example, an engineer here who makes one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year. Um, is going to cost close to two hundred thousand. OK, now and and um I would say the average engineer who costs something like 125,000 plus benefits and taxes and everything is going to cost maybe 180, but there's, we have an engineer here or something like that, but they basically cost 200 grand instead of 180,000, even though their salary is 125. So that means that that engineer has to generate $600,000 in revenue for us to justify hiring them. So they have to generate $600,000 by themselves to justify that. Okay. If you're out there in the job market, play, you know, you need to understand what your total, your actual cost is, not what your salary is, but what your total, what the total spend is on you. Right now, you have really young engineers and I, you know, I'm going to give some tough love here to some engineers out there. If you have less than two years of experience, job experience, and, um, and you want something like say $140,000 a year you're fucking insane. <laughs> I mean, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you there, you don't earn, you haven't earned that. You have no experience just because you have an education and you had a job where you did a project that doesn't make, make you worth $140,000 a year. And really what it boils down to is this, are, are you the type of engineer? This is one of the, a really important thing here. If you're the type of engineer who provides value to other people around you to make them better, you're worth way more. If you're the type of engineer who requires a lot more energy from other engineers around you, that is a, a lot more support, a lot more resources to support you, then you're worth less in the market, in the open market. Okay. And you need to be asking those questions, right? Um, 
you know, am I the type of person who needs a lot of support or am I the type of person who can support a lot of other people? And that's what we call direct and indirect value. Direct value is how much you can actually bill as an engineer. And indirect value is, is the, is the impact you have on other people's ability to bill. Okay. And if you're and it doesn't matter what market, say you work for the end user, it's the same thing. If I'm an engineer in an engineering department for a manufacturer, I am more valuable if I am making other people better at their job. And I am less valuable if I'm having to take resources from other people so that I can do my job. Okay. And, 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 uh, and the net is I, I require more support than I can give a lot. One of the things I discovered is a lot of people don't understand that we may, we use this example. Are you the type of person that I can throw a stack of papers in front of just a big stack? Here's, here's a bunch of printed emails functional specification, a couple of contact numbers, you know, and can you turn that into a finished project? <laughs> That's the most valuable senior engineer, the one who could take a stack of papers and nothing else and a couple of contact, you know, a couple of phone numbers, a couple of emails, um, uh, email addresses, a stack of communications, a functional specification, a statement of work and turn that into a finished job. That's that's a really small percentage of the people out there in the market. It really is. What we try to do at Intellic is rather than try to build our teams out of Intellic and 4.0, try to build our teams out of people who can take the stacks of paper. What we're looking for is the people who can take select sheets of paper in that stack and deliver. And then put them on a team of people who are more than the sum of their parts, who when we take all those pieces of paper that they can deliver on, it's the full stack. Okay. That's the approach we take. Okay. So um, if you're interested and that sounds interesting to you, then you should uh, reach out to us. We right now we're, I think we're looking to add five resources, a couple of seniors, a couple of mid-levels and a, um, a junior. And then I think we're also adding another business development person, but I'm not, mistaken. Um, what is a senior? A senior is the person who can take a stack and deliver a finished project. A mid-level is somebody who can take a couple of sheets of paper in that stack and deliver a finished functional capability. And they can work with a team who's delivering the other pieces of paper. And the junior is the person who follows orders <laughs> and learns <laughs> and does the bullshit stuff. Okay. And learns, spends two years learning, making mistakes and recovering quickly. If that's interesting to you, you can, um, we're going to do this thing. You can text me directly on my, we're actually going to give you guys my work cell number and you will, if you do text it, you will get me. Um, it is my phone and it's the one I carry. Um, you can text my work cell. Um, also, if you have any questions that you want me to answer directly and I have the time, I can answer them quickly. You can do that as well. Um, I know you guys do this through LinkedIn and Twitter and I get a lot of it. Um, but we're now giving my work cell. So I, I expect to hear my phone exploding over there here in a couple of minutes. So, um, all right, with that, uh, reminder mentorship call this Friday, uh, MES bootcamp session number five is this Saturday. Um, so we got two more to go and then we'll be all done with the, the first MES bootcamp. Uh, we'll be doing an advanced MES bootcamp, uh, right after the first of the year, we're working on the curriculum right now. We'll be adding a bunch of advanced features, um, I wanted to give a shout out to Jeff Nepper. So you guys may remember Jeff Nepper was, um, 
he, I, I think he was the director of marketing and business development for Canary. I think that was his actual job. Uh, maybe he was an exec- executive vice president. He was high up in the company. He was responsible for most of the growth that you saw at Canary over the last five years or so. Jeff is a personal friend, great human being. I'm actually going to use Jeff as an, he doesn't know I'm doing this. I didn't tell him I was actually giving him the shout out. But Jeff announced um, last week uh, this. Very excited to announce my new role as a partner at Flow Software. So you guys will know Flow is one of our favorite pieces of software. They're based out of South Africa. They're coming here to the United States. Um, Nepper has partnered with their team. Okay. Um, and he he's actually a partner with the organization here in the United States, I think, or maybe the global organization as well. Um, this is exciting and bittersweet as I dearly love Canary and I will always be indebted to Gary Stern and Ed Stern as well as the entire Canary family for giving me such an incredible opportunity six years ago. Congratulations to Ken Wyant on his new role as the director of business solutions. He's the perfect fit for Canary's continued growth. So for, for the stuff that you were using Jeff Nepper for, you're now going to be using uh, Ken Wyant at Canary as well as, um, as well as Sean Ebersol. Um, they'll basically be, you know, they're the guys who will answer the questions that Jeff would have normally have answered. Um, he said that I'm excited to remain partnered with Alan Ray and facilitate Integrate Live as this community continues to grow. And thank you to Graham Welton, Bram Venter, and David Greaves for your confidence and partnership at Flow. I'm excited to get started and can't wait to work with this incredible team you've gathered. Let's go. I, w- I want to say a couple of things. Congratulations to Jeff. I think this is a outstanding move. I- I've known that it was kind of in the works for a while. I want I want to use this announcement as an example to kind of um, drive home my position on the quiet quitting thing. You know, Jeff Jeff had this in his head for it took a it took a while to make this happen. You know, year year and a half, whatever it was. It, you know, it takes a while to make a big move like this to go from being a trusted leader for one software organization to become now a partner with another software organization. You know, you got to hire your replacement at your previous company, all this kind of stuff. From the, from the time that Jeff may, you know, kind of knew, Hey, this is something I might do. I'm kind of interested in doing it. He, from that moment until he made this announcement, which was a long, a, a, a long time. I don't know exactly how long it was year, year and a half, whatever. Jeff gave 110% to Canary Labs. And, and, and if you look at the growth at Canary over that period, the numbers bear that out. Jeff knew he was making a jump to do his own thing, to become a partner and have an ownership stake in the company. And yet for the next 12 to 18 months or whatever it was, he gave fucking everything he had to, to the employer he had, to, to the company that gave him his shot, that helped him build his reputation in the industry. He gave him everything. He didn't, he didn't uh, act his wage or whatever it was. Je- when I meet someone like Jeff, which who, and Jeff and I have been friends now five years, give or take, I don't remember exactly how long it is, but we've been friends a while and I have, you know, immense amount of respect for a Nepper. Um, he doesn't know I'm doing this. He has no idea. He's probably gonna be shocked. I'm even mentioning him. Um, Jeff is a stand-up guy. He, he's a values-based guy. He's a mission-based guy. I, I don't. I don't need to pick apart Jeff's arguments when he tells me something. When Jeff, when Jeff g- 
gives me a position or he he tells me something about a piece of software he wants me to test out i can trust it because i know the man he is right and the way he conducted himself over the last year and a year and a half is a testament to that man so kudos to you my brother uh i love you with all my heart um on the tail end of that we got an email this morning and we got permission to announce this um Canary reached out to us because they have announced that they're doing new pricing starting in 2023. And I'm just going to go ahead and read the email that they sent out um, internally to their partners. I, ho I hope you guys are doing well. I wanted to make you aware of the new pricing structure we're moving to in 2023. So the kind of the Canary Labs historian, the idea is to follow more closely with the ignition model of offering unlimited clients with every Canary historian. So one of the things that you guys may have known um, was that you would be limited to the number of clients you could open um, using like Axiom or any of the UI tools based on the licenses that you had, okay? Um, we are, they're, they're changing that. We are also moving to a tiered or package pricing solution. So as you will see in the attached price list, there are six different tag level packages and each package comes with an unlimited number of Axiom and Excel add-in clients. This is a big announcement. This is a big deal. There's an option to add the ODBC connector and extra tags in 1,000 tag increments to any of these packages. So with the new pricing, you're going to get unlimited Axiom clients. That's the UI. That would be the equivalent of in Ignition, how we get unlimited vision clients or unlimited perspective clients running in a project. That's an unlimited number of users connected to the server at any given time through the UI. That didn't used to be the case with Canary. It will be with this new pricing for 2023. <clears throat> also, the cloud pricing session lists quarterly costs for a Canary historian hosted on a standalone Azure server in a U.S. region. We do not have any reselling opportunities for our partners if they have a customer interested in this option, however. Therefore, we recommend our partners maintain their own cloud platforms. Okay. Let me let me say this. This is a this is a big announcement. Okay, for Canary. I mean, the value of Canary just went up drastically in terms of in terms of the utility it's still the same but the value what you get for your money just went up drastically okay um by the way canary this is unsponsored canary didn't ask us to do this i read this email i messaged sean and said hey dude i'd like to announce this on the podcast he said great do it so um it's totally unsponsored i don't have a horse in this race this is a big deal so if if uh if you're looking to do canary the big advantage going forward now is you'll have an unlimited number of Axiom clients that can connect to your historian. So now you won't be limited by the total, the number of users who can access your historical data through Axiom at any given time. Okay. Um, all right. Let's talk about this. This. Uh, let's get into the technical stuff. Josh, is there anything I need to answer real quick? If there is, just throw it up there. All right. Um, Eric Kimberling. To, uh, you guys remember uh, I was on his podcast a couple months ago um, and he did a podcast this morning uh, at nine o'clock. You can check this out on LinkedIn. Um, it's why digital transformation failures are increasing a lawyer's perspective. Okay. And uh, I'll just read what he wrote here. Why digital transformation failings are increasing a perspective, a lawyer's perspective with digital transformation and ERP implementation failures increasing at a rapid rate. 
it is important to dissect the root causes of implementation challenges. So from a lawyer's perspective, it's vendor-friendly contracts, forced cloud migrations, faulty system integrator assumptions, and other factors that create an uneven playing field that can favor the vendors rather than their customers. In this live Q&A discussion, Marcus Harris from Taft Law will provide a software attorney's perspective on what organizations should do to avoid these problems. We'll discuss the things you need to know to mitigate risk and establish a foundation for success when planning a digital transformation for 2023. Highly recommend you guys watch this, okay? I'm gonna give my comments here. Um, Marcus's perspective here, the, the attorney here, is from the, is from the digital thread approach to solving problems. Okay, so everything he's going to be commenting about is, you know, think Rockwell Connected Enterprise, right? All of the reasons he says digital transformation is failing, it, it's increasing, the rates are increasing. It's vendor-friendly contracts, forced cloud migrations, faulty system integrator assumptions, and other factors that create an uneven playing field that favor vendors rather than their customers. This is something I talk about all the time, right? You, you know, the values of your partners, the digital transformation only fails for three reasons. Okay. Every, every single digital transformation failure, by the way, 80% of organizations, 80% fail in their first attempt. That is they get <clears throat> next to no value out of their first attempt at digitally transforming their organization. They have a big spend with little return. And it's for one of only three reasons, wrong strategy, wrong technology, wrong partners. So what I do want to say, I want to temper expectations with this podcast in that if what you do is believe that all you need are vendor-friendly agreement or uh, customer-friendly agreements to get value out of digital transformation, and you don't have the right strategy, you're using the wrong technology, and you haven't picked the right partners, you're still going to fail. However, if you have the correct digital strategy, which is a mission statement for why you want to become a digital company, the mission statement through which everybody is, is working. Number two, you've picked the right technology, edge-driven, report by exception, lightweight, open architecture. You're not, get, you're not vendor locked in. Okay, You're going technology-centric, not solution-centric. And you're picking the right partners, agnostic integrators, agnostic consultants who are working with vendor-specific integrators to make sure that the decisions being made are a function of the interest of the customer and not the interest of some vendor agreement. If you're doing those three things first, then go ahead and listen to this attorney. But if you're not doing those first things first, the, the, those three, three things first, then you're wasting your time. Okay. Um, I, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more and I'm probably, I'm actually probably going to shoot a video that's going to kind of comment on that on that podcast, which I, I loved, by the way. Uh, hold on, let me check something here real quick. Um, the opposite of quiet cutting contracts, Jeff. Yep. Thank you, Mario. Uh, Liam Doyle. Uh, last week, you mentioned that everyone is expendable. Elon Musk proved that last week when he fired a large proportion of his staff, possibly in violation of employment laws in many places. Um, yeah, Liam, he, so real quick on the, um, Elon did not violate any employment uh, labor laws. Uh, he offered 90 days of, so 
in the in the I mean, this is part of the problem. It's part of the the miscommunication, right? It's misinformation. It's just people trying to attack Elon. You you really think that Elon Musk is just like fuck it? We're going to break all the labor laws? No, his lawyers. He what he said was, how can we lay everybody off Friday? And they said, well, what you have to do is we're supposed to give them sixty days notice. So, uh, in in certain if we're if we're over a certain number of employees and we're doing it last minute, we have to give them a certain amount of notice. All you have to do is offer them the pay that equals those days. That's what he did. He offered ninety days severance which was 90 days, not 60 days, and then said, you're out on Friday. He didn't violate the labor laws. Um, he's continuing to pay them. So it, it's just they're not working on Friday. He offered 90 days of severance to those employees. Um, he didn't violate any labor laws. Uh, moreover, I mean, the company is underwater. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's uh, and, and moreover, the courts forced them to buy it. So, um how is, uh, looking forward, how's everyone doing today? Why doesn't everyone feel that way? Richard Benemy, what do you, uh, Richard Benemy said, why doesn't everyone feel that way? Uh, what's that question really in relation to Richard Benemy? I love to answer it. Um, and, and yes, Liam, everyone is expensive, expendable. Um, education isn't much without experience. Uh, Benjamin education is nothing without experience. I totally agree. Yeah. I'll tell you a little story. You know, I put myself through college. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And when I got my first degree, uh, I threw my own graduation party, <laughs> my own college graduation party. And my dad, this is before I got my first real job. And my father came to my graduation party. And you know, I'm sitting, I remember I'm sitting in a fold out chair in the yard and I'm like drinking a beer and, you know, I got all these people there. My dad walked up and he you know, had, he was misty eyed and tears in his eyes, just like when I graduated from high school and my dad cried at my graduation, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you know, I'm really proud of you, you know, but nothing you learned in school makes a bit of difference in the real world. Your education, your real education starts today. That's what he said. And you know what? He was fucking right. Um, I, and, and I, that advice my father gave me was absolutely invaluable. Like when I went and got the job in the salt mine, I was a college graduate working with a bunch of working class guys who'd only gone to high school or gone, maybe gone to tech school, vocational school. And most of the other college graduates that were there, most of the folks that had engineering degrees and stuff, they acted like they, they knew they, they were the smart ones like that. They know they knew best and they had no experience. You know, they were working with guys who had 20, 30 years experience guys and gals who had 20, 30 years experience uh, trying ideas, having them fail, pivoting, trying a new idea. And these young guys come in and they, and they try to propose something that has failed in the past that these people know is going to fail. And, and they still try to push it through and ignore the people with all the experience. Those guys eventually get chewed up and spit out. Those college guys that come in who think they know everything, they're brilliant. Um, they, they end up getting chewed up and spit out. It's the, it's the college educated folks who latch on to those with the most experience and learn from the people who have the most experience. That's a bit, the biggest difference. Like even Jeff Rankin in on here will tell you like when he's teaching automation at Penn tech, the biggest challenge is, is that these kids aren't learning 
in the manufacturing environment. So there's so many things about manufacturing that they're not learning. They're learning the automation component, but there's all these other elements that they're not learning at the same time that you only get that they that you only get through experience. I could tell you this in this day and age, you don't need to go to college for your education. You need, you go to college for your confidence. And I tell my kids, my kids all have to have college degrees. I had three of them graduate this last fall, but I, or this last spring, but I, I told them you're not going to college to get a degree and, and, and get educated. You're going to college to achieve the first thing you will ever achieve on your own. College is where you develop your confidence. You learn critical thinking skills and you learn how to write, but you don't really, today you can get educated online for free. You don't have to go to school. And this is the truth. You don't, you don't have to go to school to become educated, but you do need to develop confidence through achievement. And athletics is a good way to do that. But going to college and getting your degree when you don't feel like getting it or going into the military and getting through basic training and then getting through tech school and putting in four years when you hate your job that whole time, that's invaluable because those are achievements that no one else gets to take credit for. Like when you're a kid and you're 17, 18, 19 years old, when you graduate from high school, big fucking deal. Idiots graduate from high school every day. That's not an accomplishment. Okay. Moreover, your parents get to take credit for half of it, right? They, they're the ones who house you, fed you, that, you know, told you to do your homework, reviewed your presentation before you went to school, called your teacher and negotiated for that better grade. You know, I mean, fuck, I'm not going to lie. I, I invest money in my kids' schools because it gets us influence, right? I mean, and I see it, <laughs> you know, I, every year, you know, you, I mean, you know, you, I, I didn't, I don't do the investment to get the influence. I do the investment to support other kids, but it gets us influence. And there are a lot of parents that do that stuff. But when you're in college and you're going through and getting your education for the first, you know, and you're a young kid who's learning how to get out of bed without somebody waking you up and get to class and plan your time, you're doing that on your own. You're doing that. But just because you got that education doesn't make you, you know, super, you should come out of college going, my education starts today. And that was a invaluable lesson that my father taught me. I can tell you that right now. It absolutely invaluable. All right. Let's talk about, um, this, this, uh, the future of industry isn't digital. So this is a little bit controversial. I got a bunch of heat behind the scenes for my post here. You guys can check this out on, on LinkedIn. I think Josh will put the link in or whatever, but uh, Nathan Linder, who is the CEO of Tulip, he's the, one of the founders, chairman at Tulip. He did a post um, on his LinkedIn. Um, and that post was um, the future of industry isn't digital. Okay. He says our new hashtag fast company is focused on people augmentation over pure automation. And then you can read this article and they have a him and his partner. They have a book coming out or maybe it did come out already. Um, and it's, you know, the point of view, the future of industry isn't digital. Okay. And in a nutshell, in a nutshell, what he says is that the, the future of industry is human. Okay. That's what he says. I, I found his post to be incredibly misleading um, and dangerous dangerous 
for the future of some manufacturers if they read this and they go, oh, our focus only needs to be over here. So here was my response. Some of you guys may have read it, but I wrote, there are some points in this post that I legitimately agree with. For example, digital transformation happens at the intersection of bottom-up improvement and top-down vision and oversight. Digital transformation starts with unlocking potential on the plant floor. That's the human element. Tapping into the potential of people. Digital transformation is more than automation. It's about augmenting people, although I couldn't hate this term more. I agree with those things that Nathan said. However, if organizations chart their digital transformation journeys based on the premise that the future of industry isn't digital, quote unquote, it's human, then they're going to drive off a cliff. Spoiler alert, the future of industry is digital and human. Okay. There's the problems with this article. There is no mention of digital strategy. There's no mention of digital architecture, digital supply chain. There's no mention that the future of industry are organizations built around digital data being their primary commodity, driving the development of products that get better after the customer buys them. There's no mention of hub and spoke supply chain monitored with machine learning, managed by artificial intelligence, and implemented on a common infrastructure across verticals, horizontals, business units, and markets. This piece has some valid points, but it is missing the key points that organizations must know. The future of industry is absolutely digital, top to bottom, left to right. If you think otherwise, you're driving off a cliff. Start with your digital strategy. Think mission statement for why you want to be a digital company. And then perhaps adopt the sentiments in this piece for your workforce pillar. Then move on to your architecture, your minimum technical requirements, and then you enable. But for goodness sake, please understand that the future of industry is digital, full stop. And this is not a semantic argument, by the way. Someone could make the argument, oh, he's just using wordplay. No, he's not. He is absolutely saying the future of industry isn't digital and that digital isn't a key component of the future of industry. Now, all manufacturing facilities, all warehouses will all be hubs in the same infrastructure. That's the future. Right now, every Tesla on the road is a smart node in a digital ecosystem. One that includes all of the suppliers that supply the manu the Tesla with the materials they use to manufacture those cars. One common digital infrastructure. Tesla Im Im improves their vehicles at the speed of light. I got another software update last night. My regenerative braking is more efficient. My battery life went up. That happened last night. That's why no one compete, can compete with Tesla. I mean, Hyundai, Volkswagen, they're, they're close. Hyundai is your sneaker, by, your sleeper, by the way. I want to point out one quick comment here. Um, I think it's this guy. 
Dr. Ng, Javier Palafox Alberon. He's an industry 4.0 consultant, mentor, and extensionist uh, centered around factory technology. And this is what he this is what he commented. It was, and I thought it was a very insightful comment on what N- N- Nathan had posted. And he said, you know, I bought their book. Um, they are clearly brilliant people. And I totally agree in their focus on how frontline workers are experts in their own processes. So do I. There's no, the smartest person in your organization is on the plant floor. Allowing them to write their own apps has sense initially. Okay. However, I don't know how experienced they are in the day-to-day of shop floor operations. Here's a, here's a spoiler. They're not. Okay. Developing node code applications will allow to have quick wins initially, but these will hit a glass ceiling without a proper SDLC cycle and data governance. Absolutely. Why? Because what's the ultimate goal? You start out by solving the problems that human beings identify with their naked eye, the pa- based on patterns they can see with the naked eye. But where does the real value come from? Like the long-term value, the sustainable value? It's using machine learning for what it's good at. And machine learning finds patterns and data we can't see in the naked eye correlations and relationships and causations that we cannot see with the naked eye. So if all we're going to do is use no code apps on the plant floor to try and solve very complex layered business problems, we won't ever solve them. One of the things that's missing in, in Nathan's argument is the importance of strategy, architecture, and technology. In fact, it, I mean, it just doesn't exist there. Okay. I, I found this incredibly disheartening reading this. And I, I took a bunch of shit. You know, hey, these are the guys from Tulip. All these people invested all this money, yada, yada, yada. I mean, if you're wrong, you're wrong. Right. I'd love to have Nate come on here and clarify. And I love, I by the way, I love Tulip. Absolutely love Tulip's platform. Love them. But not cool. Um, how can this statement connect to the tulip framework? Is this framework different from other frameworks? Um, let me see here. How can how can this statement connect to the tulip framework? Is this framework different from other frameworks? It's not different. In t- tulip is still your tulip is an IoT platform based in the cloud. Um, it has a standard, uh, software stack. So backend API UI, the big difference with Tulip is the baked in no code development capabilities. So dragging, uh, you know, dragging an object and dropping it on a screen, like no code development and all the connectors. That's the big thing they have the, you know, there's, there's a big stack to the left of their software stack. That's like connector based and it's all IIoT stuff. Right. So, you know, it's OPC, it's SQL, it's and but then it's all the IIoT protocols as well, like MQTT. Um, I'm a big fan of Tulip. I really am. I like it a lot. Uh, Liam Doyle, the future of industry is certainly digital. However, instead of simply taking a purely technocentric approach to organizations, we should take a socio technical approach. Um, I agree. I agree. Uh, what I would say is that you should take neither all one nor all the other. 
This is a interesting subject here, and we'll get into the OEE thing here in a second. <clears throat> um, uh, you know, you'll hear me talk about digital thread uh, quite a bit and why it doesn't work as the foundation of a... <coughs> Um, why it doesn't work as the foundation of an organization's industry 4.0 architecture. So what is digital thread? R real quick. The best way to describe it, like if you're an automation person, plant PAX, so plant packs from Rockwell Automation, that's digital thread, right? So if I were to, if I buy the, if I buy plant packs and I'm using factory talk with PTC ThingWorks or factory talk innovation suite, and then Azure Cloud, okay? There, the, the UDTs and the add-on instructions with my PAX objects that have my faceplates for Factory Talk View and then um, my objects for Factory Talk MES and then my objects for Innovation Suite, right? My event frames for in the historian and my asset frames in the historian, they all line up. They're the same object. They're one thread, right? The AOI generates UDTs. That's, a, that's an object. Say it's a triangle. I have a triangle faceplate in Factory Talk View that maps directly to it. I have a, a triangle faceplate in Factory Talk MES that maps to it. I have a triangle faceplate, or a, a, that's a an event frame or an asset frame inside of uh, Factory Talk Historian, which is OSI Pi, which maps right to it. And then I have Thing. I have a I have a Thing in Factory Talk Innovation Suite, which is PTC ThingWorks, that is the shape of a triangle, right? And then I have my um, IoT Hub template in in the cloud in Azure Cloud that maps to it. That's a thread, right? There, there's the reason that that is not a technological infrastructure across an entire operate uh, organization is because it is monolithic. Imagine that there are boundaries around that the the channel through which that thread passes up the organization. And on the other side of the boundary is all the things that are not Rockwell. They're not ro It's not Rockwell software and it's not Rockwell partner software. I haven't paid Rockwell to play inside the boundaries. Okay. No organization is 100% Rockwell automation. And no organization is 100% Siemens and no organization is 100% Emerson. Those are solution stacks. Okay, um, there is a place for plant packs, but it is not the centerpiece of your digital infrastructure. Okay, there's a place where you can leverage those threads for specific use cases. Okay, but it's not the centerpiece of your organization. It's not the it's not the single source of truth for all data and information in your organization. I was just reading about a big announcement. Rockwell won a, a really large Hyundai contact contractor, or I thought, or whatever, and I thought. Interesting take, interesting play on Hyundai's part, and they should hire somebody to show them where all the gaps are, but hopefully not me. Uh, Liam Doyle, the systems we develop and use within organizations include humans as well as technologies. Too many systems development projects fail by not considering the human element. Agreed. And it's really human knowledge. Uh, Lee Taylor, I've never been truly successful in building a solution without thinking of the human. I've seen plenty trying to ignore the human failing miserably, though. Agreed. And in fact, what we say is that digital transformation has to start 
with unlocking potential on the plant floor. And you unlock potential through people. But if you don't do that through strategy, architecture, and technology, common strategy, architecture, technology, what you will get is um, there's a great video. Josh, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I get it wrong, but there's a great video online. It's like the Democratic Socialist Convention. Um, it was like the National Convention for the Democratic Socialist Party in the United States. Okay, you should look this up. And in that, there's there's no there's no common strategy or architecture, or there's no um, there's no foundation through which all the people in that conference are communicating with one another. And so it just becomes a, a jumbled mess of uh, a jumbled mess of disorganized communications in this huge conference center. And absolutely nothing gets accomplished. In fact, I don't think they ever actually get the agenda approved. They spend hours and hours and hours trying to get the agenda approved and they can't get it approved. That is a metaphor for that is a metaphor for people all trying to solve their own problems, but not doing it under a common strategy, a common technology or a common architecture. It is a, a totally appropriate metaphor. It's it's that was that's a room full of data silos, all trying to yell at one another in their own native language that no one can understand. <laughs> I mean, it's it's very comical. Okay, uh, David, digital strategy and architecture become expected and invisible within 10 to 20 years. Digital human remains visible, and so is the future of industry. That's the argument, correct? All right, digital strategy and architecture become expected and invisible within 10 to 20 years. Digital human remains visible, and so is the future of industry. That's the argument, uh, correct? Uh, sort of their argument. Um, think of this think, Let's let, let, let me explain it this way. Imagine the future of industry is an island. It's on an island in the middle of the ocean. Okay. And right now the, the legacy organizations are operating on the mainland. Okay. And in order for them to be part of the future of industry, they have to they have to chart a path that gets them safely to the island. And once they're on the island, they can just allow the organization to grow organically. Okay? Digitally. The the way to go from the mainland to that island in the middle of the ocean is digital strategy, architecture, and technology and drawing an error vector, a vector that that chart puts you on a course that lands you on that island. What Nathan is missing in his argument is that piece. He's talking about what happens on the island. He's not talking about how you get there. That's what's missing. And what organizations need, what organizations need to know 
is how to get from where I am right now to where I'm supposed to go. Right. And that's that's where the digital transformation maturity assessment comes in. That's where all of these strategies, these architectures we've designed are all centered around taking organizations that are disparate, data siloed, disconnected, uncollected, unanalyzed, okay, highly political, not on a common strategy, no architecture, a million different technologies, and pushing all that together into a common strategy, architecture, and technology. That's going to get them to the island that is the future. Okay. All right. Um, Socio-technological approach equals strategy plus architecture plus technology plus human. Agreed. There. I, let me make make no mistake. My argument is the the future of industry is digital and human. Um. I want to talk about uh, real quick. This. Uh, I want to drive home a point, and then we'll talk about the OEE thing real quick. Cirrus Link announced in September the release of the Azure IoT Bridge. Okay, and I talked about this briefly. I'm going to talk about it again here. There are two major announcements that have come out in the last few months that have fundamentally changed what's going to happen in 2023 as it relates to a lot of people's uh, Industry 4.0 digital strategy. And that is the announcement of the Azure IoT Bridge from Cirrus Link, which is a... Uh, it's a application that you can get from the Azure store that allows you to connect IoT bridge to um, an ignition infrastructure and vice versa. And it basically make, gives us the ability, the real game changer piece here is the ability for at that application to consume templates over Sparkplug B, which are data types in ignition into Azure IoT Hub natively as Azure IoT Hub templates. And if I make changes to the Hub template in Azure, it will propagate and be consumed by Ignition through that connector. So now what we have is a two-way connection for the pr production and consumption of data types as templates from Ignition to Azure and, and back, Azure IoT Hub and back. That is a Huge fucking deal <laughs> because what it gives you is now I can take the data. I can take the data points from my tags inside of ignition and using the Azure, the Azure IOT bridge over MQTT spark plug B, I can natively stream that data into time series insight. This is a big one for us is I can natively stream and historize that data into time series insights with, with no transformation no modification J just times i mean the time series insights one is just a is a huge fucking deal to start with okay the second thing is is the announcement of ignition cloud which will be available on both aws and azure with ignition where you're going to be able to build through aws or azure stores okay that, and and they're native they're not ports these are native instances of ignition cloud of ignition. Okay, that's a big deal, huge deal. Um, and I, I really cannot stress the significance. We are going to do in um, either mentorship or mastermind. I think we're probably going to do it in the in a mastermind session. We are we're going to do this integration. And and I last week I want to put something perspective here. 
Um, we our time management system here at Intellic Integration. So on the engineering side, I was having a meeting with my my team, okay, and uh, with my executive leadership team. We're, we're reviewing business systems and we're getting ready to expand our unified namespace, our businesses unified namespace to incorporate some data that we don't currently integrate. Okay, and it comes from our CRM. And the other day, I I wanted to start doing this development. And I just spun up a cloud. I spun up a, an, a server in the cloud. I installed Ignition. And I connected Ignition to our unified namespace that's running in an EMQX broker. And within that brand new platform, which, you know, it took me 15 minutes to do this. I had the entire structure of our business, you know, who are you know, the, the full unified namespace, you know, what was the last, um, you know, what are the utilization rates for every engineer? How many billable hours are remaining on every individual project? What are the open POs? What's, you know, what is, uh, um, what's the open orders total? What do we have an outstanding invoicing ever? I had every data point at my fingertips in 15 minutes without having to go into multiple systems. Okay. We had this conversation about, hey, in our business systems meeting, we we're talking about the things that we want to pull from the CRM that we don't currently integrate from the CRM because we, our license with our CRM isn't, um, you know, it's not the professional license, so we don't have the API. But now we, we've upgraded and we're going to go ahead and pull from this REST API into the namespace. But we have a, we have a, a solution b- that I built in 2015, 14, something like that, our time management system which is how we it's it's how we manage all of our projects and it's how we manage all of our our uh, time entries for our engineers and it's all built in ignition like the the whole thing like the whole centerpiece of our business is built in ignition right and i remember uh, we were in in the in the strategy session i was listing all the business systems that we have on a slide and I was like, what are, what are, you know, we have, we use Trello for this. We use Smartsheet for that. We use Azure DevOps for this and blah, 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 blah. And I remember thinking, looking at this, this uh, slide and going, what's amazing is, is that no other organization I, I, that I know of, no other systems integrator has all the information that's in all these various systems unified right there on that screen like that, like all in just one place. And I was thinking, if I showed this to manufacturers, they would understand what we're talking about when it comes to a UNS, which maybe I will do, actually, or at least show the mastermind folks. All right, last thing I want to talk about is this this uh, um, OEE thing. So there was a post the other day. That we, you know, we shot the I shot the video. OEE is powerful and um, important. And, you know, why did I shoot that? And it was because this guy, Dave McGowan, on um, LinkedIn, he posted uh, um, an article about the top 15 smart factory KPIs. And the and the number one um, KPI was OEE. So there was a list of 15 KPIs that we you should be using to measuring to measure the success of your smart factory strategy. And, and it, OEE was number one. And the reason I ended up seeing this was because Rick Bellotta had commented on it. And he had said, well, that's, you know, anybody with a brain knows OEE is not the most important KPI 
to measure smart factory strategy, right? So I went, I looked at it. I'm like here, here are the 15 KPIs that this IoT analytics said are the 15 most important KPIs for measuring the success of your smart factory strategy. Okay, so increase in overall equipment effectiveness is number one. Increase in labor efficiency. Increase in output. Decrease in costs. Increase in quality. Increase in supply chain resiliency. Increase in revenue. Increase in on-time delivery. Decrease in reported safety incidents. Increase in operational resiliency. Increase in customer satisfaction. Decrease of waste. Increase in ROE, ROCE. Increase in market share, market penetration, and a decrease in inventory levels. Okay. And I remember looking at this and thinking, how the hell is OEE at the top of that list? I mean, most of these on here, I don't use, I, I wouldn't use as KPIs for, is our strategy working? Okay, and that's what he wrote in his post. But this is what I wrote about OEE. And I want to, I want to, I I, I, in this other video, I drove home this point of why OEE matters. But I want, this is what I said about OEE, just this top part. I'm a huge fan of OEE as a concept and its use as a KPI for operational analysis when implemented correctly. Do I agree that it's the top metric for measuring the success of a smart factory strategy? Not a chance. It's not even the top five. I, I'd argue it doesn't belong in the top 15 list because OEE doesn't tell you at all how effective your smart factory strategy is because OEE is an operational strategy, not a smart factory strategy. Okay. But I want to talk about the OEE piece. So many people are haters on OEE. And the reason why is because just like with digital transformation, just like with digital transformation, OEE is implemented incorrectly more times than not. And everyone watching this knows it to be true. All the MES folks on here, anyone who's ever gone and evaluated an existing manufacturing execution system on a plant four, or maybe a paper version or some code, somebody wrote in a PLC to calculate OEE more times than not, it's done wrong. Either capturing the events wrong. They're capturing too many of them manually. They're doing the calculation wrong. They're using the wrong rates. They're manipulating downtime. So both planned and unplanned downtime. They're, they're giving people the power to emit to manipulate the output for their own self-interest. OEE, like digital transformation, is implemented incorrectly. More times than not. Digital transformation doesn't fail. Digital transformation initiatives do. OEE doesn't fail. OEE initiatives do. And our mindset has to change. The, the focus when it comes to digital transformation or deploying a digital MES has to start from what our strategy is, okay? It has to be focused on the best ideas winning. The best ideas have to come from accurate data, okay? Um, all right, I'm a little bit over, sorry about that. Hopefully I, I touched on everything. There's a couple of things I wanna, I'm gonna um, be sending out to those who are in the MES bootcamp. You guys will see that stuff tomorrow. Um, a mentorship. I'll be sending out the announcement on Thursday, what our topic's going to be. Um, I want to thank you guys for watching. If you're in the United States, get out and vote and I will see you in the next one.